Welcome to the DP30 Audio Pod. How are you, Andrew? I'm good. How are you, David? It's been a it's been a minute since we've seen each oh, other. Yeah. Well, you know, we gotta go on through our work. Going on. I still keep on recommending Ivory Tower to everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, I recommend all of your films, but Ivory Tower is like for all the kids, people are their kids getting ready to go to college. It's a like, gotta watch this movie. Gotta watch this movie. You wanna be scared? Watch this movie. <laughs> So it's 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 a regular on my uh, movies you haven't seen but you must see list. It, it's sort of an unintentional horror film. Yes. Today in the show, it's Andrew Rossi, director of the Andy Warhol Diaries, showing on Netflix. Um, and of course, I still uh, celebrate David uh, David's birthday every uh, September. So <laughs> he stays with me. That movie stays with me. So I, I still have you in my life. I just don't have you in my life. Well, hopefully the Andy Warhol Diaries is a new frontier um, to, to you know, bring back a lot of um, similar sort of going behind the scenes of big cultural icons and institutions that are sort of inscrutable, but actually through digging, we can really learn a lot more about them and, uh, and hopefully ourselves. Well, I actually read the Andy Warhol Diaries uh, in here in Los Angeles, I went and bought it at a bookstore because I don't think there even was an Amazon at the time. Um, in fact, I know there wasn't because I know where I read it and I, there was no, there wasn't even the World Wide Web at that point. Right. Um, and I remember reading it and I, I, everybody was talking about going through the uh, index first. So I did a little of that, but mostly I just read it from cover to cover. Um, and it, it's a fascinating book. What, what's fascinating to me about your film to start with is that you have a... Um, within it kind of an on again, off again relationship with the diaries, it feels like. Like you had the diaries, you used them in an interesting way, but you didn't, you, you did not get stuck tick-tocking your way through the, the diaries like one might've expected. Definitely, that's, that's absolutely true. I, um, you know, I began working on the project in 2011 when I first thought um, of adapting the diaries and when I read them, I really connected to the sort of spiritual side that Andy was conveying, the love story, you know, all of these incredibly uh, romantic, vulnerable, you know, sort of statements of, of love and lust for Jed Johnson and John Gould, and then in some ways, Jean-Michel Basquiat too. Um, and I thought that those were what is important to understand Andy as a, as a human, but then also to sort of decode how those romantic relationships impacted the artwork. So I didn't want to um, kind of present the totality of all the parties and the celebrities and, and sort of this massive information, because I think in a lot of ways that's Andy, you know, thinking that maybe uh, the proximity to power and fame is protection, um, but it's also a distraction from the, the truth and, and his whole um, sort of cultural presence seems to be an exercise in obfuscation, making people not really see the truth behind the armor of his persona. Um, so as, as you say, if you read it from cover to cover, it's, it's absolutely a really fascinating experience. But I think what I wanted to do was to then weave those stories, which in some cases, you know, I, I wrote scripts for this and sort of combined um, and diary entries from different years in some cases in order to emphasize certain themes mm -hmm. um, and to relate to some of the work um, and then combine that with the scholarship 
and the uh, trusted associates of, of Andy's, and then those who were related to his boyfriends, uh, Jay Johnson and, and uh, Jay Gould were actually both the twins of two of Andy's boyfriends. Um, and they really bring to life these people who have been erased. Um, so it is, it's, it's not sort of a, a straight um, chronological telling, um, even though it does follow an arc, it's kind of a hybrid of traditional talking head documentary recreations and then Andy's story. So what did you know when you started? Did you, did you know these relationships were what they were? Did you have a sense of them or was that something that you figured out and then that became your central theme? You know, it's, it's amazing because Glenn Ligon has a, uh, a, a statement in the last episode that making art, we don't necessarily express who we are, we figure out who we are. And the journey for me personally of making this series was also learning so much more about Andy and understanding kind of why I had connected to his work to begin with. So started off in 2011, you know, Andy Warhol being a, a sort of a hero of mine in high school. And since I was growing up in New York City and going to galleries and my father in particular would, would take me to shows and would always sort of ask me, what do you see in these paintings? Do you, do you like them or not? My dad actually owned a restaurant and was not involved in the art world, but he likes art and, um, you know, sort of opened that world to me. And I think like many others viewed Warhol as almost like a con man. There was, there's this idea that, that, you know, the Marilyn or the Campbell soup can, it's like this Duchampian joke. There's the object, but is that really art? Right. And I think I always felt like it was. And, and I came to understand that a lot of that was connecting to Andy as a queer figure and as somebody who created a queer safe space, which he also did with his television show, Andy Warhol's TV, which was on public access cable that I watched. And there was something about him that wasn't said explicitly, but nonetheless resonated with me as a, as a young person trying to figure themselves out. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't then until 2011 when I started reading the diaries closely, because like you, I had bought it when I was younger, actually in high school, but I didn't read it through in order to really- I'm just older it. than you. What's that? I'm just older than you. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think um, for, for some reason, you know, we were both drawn to it, but it's like, once you start reading between the lines and really tracking, you know, who's, who's this person who is describing living, you know, in his townhouse or who he woke up with, um, or who was upstairs and, and there was a fire. And, and of course that's Jed Johnson. Um, or when he starts talking about, uh, about John Gould and, and wanting to um, you know, go to Cape Cod with him and, and, and the feelings of, of intimacy that he had and then not being able to write about him in the diaries. If you, if you miss like a page, you could, that entire relationship and its significance could go away. So um, I it's learned- about so all <laughs> Yeah. It's all Halston and Eliza. That's all we care about. Right. And that's also really great. But the, the more that I, I, I dove into making this series, the more that that receded. So is there a moment where you had a like, aha? Or did you, is it, was it just the careful read? I think it was like, I was, so I was actually like uh, touring with page one in Paris. Um, and I was like reading the diaries at coffee shops and like at the hotel alone. Um, and it was when I was reading about Jed that I, I just was like, what, 
who who is this? Like, you know, he was talking about um, there was a fire upstairs and it was um, in Jed's uh, interior decorating office, uh, you know, on a higher floor mm-hmm. and he ran upstairs and I was like, wait, what is the, who's this person? Why should they have an, like a, a, a space in his townhouse? And then it became clear, you know, a, a couple of years later from that diary entry, when he says, when, when I was having all the troubles with Jed and we broke up and I didn't want to tell the diary about it, I was like, oh my gosh, here's this person, which like, as you say, like there was not a worldwide web when the diaries were published and there wasn't even an index. Like it, it was considered so, um, you know, uh, provocative and controversial that I think there was like a fear that people would just take the book and look to find their name and then like sue the Andy Warhol Foundation. <laughs> Um, but so then once I was able to find these names, I actually read like a hard copy and, and highlighted it. I didn't even have like a Kindle copy, which now when you have that, it's, it's very powerful, um, and was very helpful in making the series. But yeah, it was just like reading it, like the Canterbury Tales, honestly, that's like what I often describe it as. Like it's all these like little islands of story that have moral lessons sometimes or, or, or reveal something and then they add up to a picture. I had the experience once of writing a short film about Jesus coming back to Hollywood. Uh, and I used the, uh, the, um, uh, the gospels. And I, I made Jesus was the only person who had, was only speaking in words that he spoke. And it, would, and it, was, it kind of reminded me of your film in a way because you, you really use the dialogue from the, the diaries to clarify and to, to make clean. It's not really just telling that story all the time. So that makes sense. What, what, so there was about 25, a little maybe over 25 years since the diaries came out when you started to do this, were people willing to, because I, as I remember, there was some sense that Pat was protecting him a little bit with how she edited the diaries. And there was a, you know, there were people who were very, wanted to allow him to keep his privacy even in death. We had that opened up more by the time you were starting to investigate, investigate and ask people to talk? I, I do think that once I was in production in 2020, um, you know, Bridget Berlin, um, John Richardson, others had died um, for, for different reasons. And then there was the whole sort of sense of dread and, and morbidness around COVID. You know, this, the series um, was made, it took several years to, to be created, but in some ways its actual production was like a COVID baby. And so it's, I think, suffused with that sense of like mortality and, and sadness or melancholy. Um, so people, I think, had this feeling when I sat down and spoke to them, this might be the last time that a definitive, you know, uh, accounting of Andy's life is made when these people who lived with him through the time are able to contribute. Um, but I did, I reached out to Pat in, back in 2011 and she was, you know, very kind and, and open to it. And of course it was just a sort of journey with the foundation to get the rights and, and all that, that took longer. It's interesting because for me, the COVID thing, and I lived in New York during Andy's time and used to run into him all the time at different clubs and stuff where he was for three minutes, but wow. <laughs> I used so, to, you know, Milk Bar and Danceteria and all that period of time in the eighties, the early eighties. Um, and I remember when he died, it, it felt like, I mean, a, the first 
period of COVID felt like the, the living in the village during the, that first section of AIDS. Um, it really did. It kind of like it had a creepy connectedness to the idea of, you know, that the doom level that was over it of all thing. Yes, I think that that's well, first of all, what, I'm so curious what your impressions of, of him were when you would see him and that sense of sadness. I mean, there, you know, the, the, the diaries, I think they have that sense of anxiety and, and fear. Yeah, for me, it was always the guy who was being there because he was there or was meaning to be there or meant to be there, supposed to be there and leaving. <laughs> I always felt like I saw him there and leaving and he wasn't really partying. I never really saw him dance. I never really saw him seeming to have some sort of great time with people. Of course, I wasn't sitting at his table, but um, there was always that sense that, oh, there's Andy again, and he's leaving. <laughs> like always in train. Yeah, totally. Oh, those days. Seems like a very long time. New York was a little different back then. Absolutely. There's there's some great footage, like just like a couple seconds of Andy going to uh, Michael Musto's birthday party. Right. Um, in the Nelson Sullivan archives and it's him like in his leather jacket and he's like walking to a yellow cab and it's like you know the kind of um, the orange light from a New York City street light and he's just like pointing and he, the camera is like moving he's always going somewhere he's never yeah. just like yeah he's never stopped he never he doesn't really belong there for too long he's just there to be the Andy Warhol in the room <laughs> right <laughs> anyway so you start talking to people and people, so there was a sense of, okay, let's tell the story before there's no other chance to tell the story. Yeah, I mean, I think um, people were ready to sit down. You know, many of these interviews I did are like, you know, four or five hours. I spoke to Christopher Makos like three times. And I, I wanted to push people as much as I could to confront the homophobia that existed at the time and the sort of performance that Andy was um, presenting and the ways in which his his friends and colleagues were maybe complicit with what was stated as his goal, which was to fit in and to sort of be successful. But now, 40 years later, looking back, how can we unpack what was really going on? And, and can we actually see in, in some of the work the influence of a queer point of view and also the pain of um, literally, you know, as you know, him wearing a girdle after he was shot, like raining so much in. There's there's so much that Andy in in regular life, as you suggested, moving around, never being in one place at, at, a, at a time was not saying. But the diaries, if you extract all those pieces and lay them out, give so much insight into what he was really thinking. And, and so, you know, it was also, it was the summer of 2020 and, you know, there was a, a reckoning on so many levels where, you know, people are confronting themselves and there's, and the society that we live in. And again, Andy is one of these like um, cultural icons and, and the creator of artwork that is so much, as we say, part of the air that we breathe. Um, to have so, such an important part of his life hidden felt like it needed to be disclosed, uncovered as part of a broader ethical drive in society to 
can't like get rid of the gaslighting that's been happening like why are we still believing in the sort of fairy tale that andy is like an alien and and an asexual person when in fact he had these very vivid um romantic relationships and also you know those people have been erased john gould i mean very few people i think really even knew about him jerry hall for example you know i, I talked to her and and she was very close to Jed. And, and then I asked her, you know, did you ever meet John Gould? And she's like, who, who are you talking about? Um, which is sort of part of, I think, sometimes the theater that you get in, in these interviews that um, are people protecting this yeah. image and, and, and their memory of Jed, et cetera. So were the brothers particularly willing or, or were they, I mean, were, were they, was it a secret they'd been keeping this whole time? and? somebody finally asked them or was it, were they kind of happy to remember their brothers in this way or what? Well, so in particular, Jay Gould um, was very happy to kind of salvage the, the name of his brother, John. Cause I think that, you know, John Gould lived um, a double life. He was in, in, in some uh, descriptions bisexual, but clearly also had gay relationships um, and had to be in the closet professionally. In, in order to have his job as a Paramount executive, um, he felt that he needed to not disclose his, his true um, identity. Um, and so I think that in combination with him being involved with some uh, commercial aspects of Andy Warhol's TV and Interview Magazine, led people like Bob Colicello and Vincent Fremont and Christopher Makos, who were all part of Andy's world, to not um, really get along with John. Um, and to think, to, he was sometimes described as like a user or somebody who um, was maybe exploiting Andy. And so I think for Jay Gould, part of the effort of like bringing John's story back is also to explain that he was in a corner based on the way that society was at the time and that he and Andy's relationship had to be hidden. Um, and so that's, I think there's, you know, there's this, there's this great romantic story at the heart of it. I, I, I think the diaries is a love story, but it's also, you know, queer history that, that has been, um, you know, not, not really unpacked. And, and so that, that was important for Jay Gould and Jay Johnson then also, you know, he talks about how Pat um, Hackett described uh, Jed as like living in a, um, a room upstairs when in fact they shared a bed. And so he actually also wanted to talk about the fact that, you know, Jed um, had this, you know, very real romantic life with Andy um, and that that's part of why they broke up, that, that, you know, Andy wasn't able to provide Jed with enough attention and kind of true um, emotional connection. Um, and I think that's part of, you know, Jay's own look at the 70s and Studio 54 and all of that sort of party life as kind of corrosive. And, and so it's, again, like revisiting the history through this romantic story to say like, well, Studio 54 wasn't all it was cracked up to be. <laughs> well, the intimate, you know, the simple intimacies in the film in terms of these relationships are some of the most fascinating 
I mean, they're not fascinating. Like, oh my God, I'm 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 reading anthropology, but it is, um, it does create just the intimacy of the dog, <laughs> or the you know, right. or, or coming home and putting the keys down or whatever is 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 something that, as you said from early on in this conversation, that that was something we were kind of kept from with Andy. There was no like hit, there was no human being normal life kind of thing. Forget about the sex for a second. It just even like just going home and what he's going to have for dinner is interesting because we have we're so starved of that from this human being i think so and and i think also in the context of a domestic partnership with somebody like jed it also shows that you know same-sex relationships can um exist in other dimensions besides the studio 54 dance floor right they they were like a, a, essentially a married couple um and that is is Another thing that, you know, as Alan Wanzenberg said, at the time in the 70s was just like bizarre. And so being able to bring that to the fore and not have it be um, hidden behind the robotic performance also, you know, just tells us a lot about the, the evolution of, of gay relationships and, and, and partnerships. It's interesting at Paramount, there were other cases of, of people coming out in the 2000s, you know, who, who had been closeted and marry, you know, all kinds of, and it's, it's interesting now I'm thinking about, you got me thinking about it, is that we, you know, it became kind of a joke in some ways that this one got caught with a guy in his bed or whatever. And, you know, it was ha ha ha. And then you realize it's more that, you know, it's not funny. <laughs> it is just tragic and weird, you know, and I'm, and God, God bless him for finally getting to come out. But um, even, you know, in the last 15 years to think how kind of callous uh, people who were even left wingers and you know politi politically on the right side of it still didn't really get how how lost that part of it was for gay men. It's so true. I mean, it's almost like there was a McCarthy level, you know, like red scare or something about who's gay or not. Particularly then, you know, turbocharged with the agent. business with so many gay people. Right. The thing in the film business, television business, there are a lot, plenty of gay people. It's not like it's a secret, but yet. Right. Well, and so then if you look at the Last Supper series, Jessica Beck, um, one of the Warhol experts and scholars, has a whole reading of this painting, The Big C, with Jesus Christ at the center as an arbiter of judgment and also of mercy. And so, you know, the other thing you can look at is how Paramount is a logo that appears in a lot of. Andy's artwork after he's collaborating with Jean-Michel Basquiat, and it references John Gould because John asked him not to say his name in the diary because he was afraid of being outed. So he used this code word of Paramount. And so if you look at these paintings and you understand the story, you know, this idea of like judging people who were gay and in the closet, like Andy's trying to deal with that through Jesus Christ as like a figure of mercy while people are are dying of, of AIDS. And it's just like a really, it's a fascinating mystery to like decode. And then it's an emotional historical portrait of this moment. Yeah. The tour, Andy tour, I think it may have been the next to last one or maybe the most recent one where it's his early, early stuff. And it's it's kind of a long a lifetime worth of stuff. That's what this, in many ways, this movie reminded me of that. Because one of the experiences of that for me was that it was the work that I had never seen that I thought was the most interesting stuff 
in the in the whole thing. The early stuff where he was really doing bigger portraits and not not portraits, but bigger landscapes and and real painting, painting, traditional painting that I found, you know, I didn't know that he had that in him. <laughs> you know, like we're so used to Marilyn Monroe over and over and over again. And uh, this movie kind of gave me that same kind of feeling of, of having more intimacy. Yeah, well, that's the wonderful thing about um, the focus on 1976 and 1987, which is when he kept the diaries, that late artwork, which includes The Last Supper and includes um, uh, the, the Rorschach paintings, the camouflage paintings, um, even Ladies and Gentlemen is a series in the 70s that we look at. All of that has been in some ways ignored because of, as you say, like the Marilyn Monroe, the Campbell soup can, all that iconic work of the 60s. And so I hope that also the series is an effort to bring that little scene or little discussed work um, into the mainstream conversation on Netflix. You know, I mean, that's, that's sort of, there, there have been amazing shows. The Brooklyn Museum just had a great show that Jose Diaz curated um, on Andy's religious um, influences. And Donna DeSalvo had an amazing show at the Whitney um, for me to be back again. Um, and I think putting that into the sort of mainstream conversation on Netflix is, is powerful. So once you kind of knew where you were going, I assume it kind of all came together a little bit at the same time, but the actual putting together of all of this, how difficult was that? Because you really do create the collage of, you know, decades of his life really in this movie. Completely. Well, it was, it was, I will say, an incredibly um, ambitious task. Um, and I, so I started off by writing scripts where I tried to, you know, adapt the diaries, um, look at uh, the scholarship and weave those together with um, the clips and the artwork. Um, and I had an incredible archival team um, led by Adam McGill, who was one of our archival producers. And then an incredible editor, Stephen Ross, who was able to take all these things um, and to, you know, assemble them in the edit um, in a way that I think, you know, he's a total perfectionist and, and magician in the pacing and, and the way that it comes together to immerse you. Because I think ultimately that's, that's the, the special component of, um, of being able to hear Andy's voice with the AI um, and, and sort of live from his point of view. That's the most humanizing thing that can happen is when you feel like, you know, you're, you're going on the journey, the Canterbury Tales with Andy. Um, so the AI voice was also, you know, it took a lot of um, iterations. Uh, this company Resemble AI was fantastic and made an algorithm um, that was really useful in sort of like drafting the scenes um, in terms of getting the language that Andy would speak in the diaries. Mm -hmm. And then Bill Irwin was able to read all of that. And they, in the end, combined both the, the algorithm and, and Bill's performance. Um, and then I think finally also the, the music um, that Brad Oberhofer wrote uh, for the original score, you know, it's like such a, a nice counterpoint to some of the big needle drops that we have from David Bowie and from others. It's, it's also very intimate. Um, and then Wolfgang Held, also our DP, uh, who worked with Maurice Alberti in the beginning, but then Wolfgang did all the recreations. Um, he was uh, uh, also like a, just a fabulous collaborator. So yeah, it was, 
it was a lot of sort of um, coming up with like, what's the, the vision and the lens through which to tell this. And then a, a great collaborative effort of, of many people, I think sort of feeling like personally connected to the story. And, and I think we can tap into Andy as feeling awkward and as an outsider um, in all different ways. And, and so you, you kind of root for him and you want, you know, I think that that was the spirit that we all had. Does, uh, is the material preserved more now than when you started doing documentaries? Because it seems like everybody's now figured out that it's worth something. <laughs> Whereas 20 years ago, they were still kind of like, oh yeah, well, <laughs> now it seems like every single thing somebody owns and is, is managing. Yes, well, that's that's really true in, in a couple of ways. One is that there's this collection of Andy's photographs. So he um, started taking photos with the Minix camera in the mid 70s. And so there's 130,000 negatives that are stored at the Stanford uh, collection, the Stanford University Library. And they're now all searchable. Like this happened in maybe wow. 2017, end of 2017, 2018. Um, and so you're able to search by date and, and by the name of a, a, a figure. And, you know, it, it's incredibly powerful with the diaries because then you can sort of triangulate, like, where was he? Who, who else was there? You see it in the photos. Yeah. And that's Peggy Phelan and, and Richard Meyer who created that collection. The Warhol Foundation gave them um, the images. Uh, and then also, you know, like serendipitously in 2017, um, Jay Gould and his family, Harriet Gould, who was the mother of John, she passed away. And then there was an estate sale um, of all of um, his personal effects that had been stored in an attic in Amesbury, Massachusetts after he died of AIDS um, in LA. And all that was brought back and just like put into an attic and never touched. Um, so it was, I, I was really, sort of moved when I was able to go and, and film that auction and find these letters and, and poems that John had written to Andy and Andy to John that were saved um, in addition to like a bunch of photos. And so all of that material also, you know, is, is just this incredible record of that relationship. You know, then of course there's the time capsules, right? Like Andy famously was a hoarder in, in some ways and kept a lot of, um, his his you know detritus like the, the just the things that we normally would throw away and he put them in time capsules and those are all kept at the warhol museum in pittsburgh um and so jessica beck um again the curator at, at the museum and matt gray who's uh, in charge of the archives um opened the doors really um at the archive and at the museum to to go through and and bring out letters that Jed had written to Andy, um, like when they broke up, for example, telling him that um, he hoped that he would find all he, he wanted at Studio 54 with the various victors and others that he was with. You know, even his medical records, he, uh, he tried to take his life twice. And there are um, hospital records of when he was admitted for that and, and the cases of the pills that he took as medication. Um, there's, there was an incredible wealth of, of material that's, that's over the decades been compiled. It's amazing to think how much stuff for the entire world is out there that just like in particularly universities and the donated 
from people we are famous people who like, you know, just nobody's going through it unless they're making a documentary about it. And it's like, you know, like for instance, the, um, the South Bank show from the UK now lives at the University of Texas Austin Library. And I don't, you can't get it from the outside, but it's like, you can go there and look. And it's like this amazing, it's like the entire history of, of celebrity and British celebrity, particularly for 25 years. And they didn't, nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> so they've now, you know, so it's like, it's just living there waiting for somebody to mine it again. It's, I just found it fascinating. Absolutely. And I know you've got to know their Trevor, treasure, treasure troves of stuff about people in their personal libraries that are at each of these different universities around the country and world, um, just waiting for somebody to really look at. It's so, it's so true. There was incredible uh, 60 millimeter footage um, that Michael Blackwood filmed um, in the 60s and in also the 70s that sh in the outtakes show Andy with Jed Johnson. And so again, this is one of these figures who like, is there in the background of photographs, but there were some really beautiful moments with them together at a cafe and just this really lush cinematography. And, and there were many discoveries like that along the way. So how long do you go under for once you start down the road like this? Have you gone <laughs> for two years or you've gone for three years? Or you're doing other things at the same time or trying to or? So that's it. So I'm actually, I'm here in the edit room where uh, I really, focus the most. Um, so basically like I live in, in Brooklyn and on the ground floor um, have like a, an office and an edit suite. And so it was pretty much like two years in this almost bunker, like intensely in the edit. And then also then going out to shoot. We did lots of our shoots like outdoors um, uh, because of COVID. COVID. Um, <laughs> I did an interview yesterday where we didn't mention COVID once. <laughs> the entire interview I was like I didn't want to say anything at the end because I was like I don't want to jinx it but <laughs> it was a miracle and I think you're doing it wrong but I'm just saying it's like it's such a relief to not have COVID to talk about anymore well I think again it was like that's so like it took 11 years to get it made and of course I, I made Ivory Tower during that time and lots of other things but then the the period of actually production and making it and and putting it on screen that is like I there was I couldn't do anything else for, the part for where people go where's Andrew why isn't Andrew at dinner why are we seeing Andrew <laughs> truly <laughs> yeah and everyone who was working on it I mean honestly like especially like in the last six months or so like everyone the assistant editors the archival producers Stacy Reese our our co-executive producer who was really wrangling everything I mean it was just like you know, every six days a week, like until the the late hours. Um, but it was, but it was okay. But also because it was COVID, <laughs> like sort of. What else were you going to do in a way besides focus? Well, COVID was very good for writers in Hollywood because they all got to write. It was like the first time they've had without an assignment or going for meetings or anything else. They had two years actually. If they had something to write that they've been trying to write, thinking about, they finally got a chance to do it. You got to go into the bunker and, and produce this film. Or direct uh, film. Uh, I will say that that so many documentaries these days, because of the because of the, think of because of the streamers, go too long, and you're like, okay, well, you know, they had footage, and they just loved every piece of footage, and they kept it in, so it's 18 hours instead of six. <laughs> this film feel I would have. This is one of the few films where I would have, I would have been happy to go another hour or two, because <laughs> you really it does feel like it is exactly what you want it to be. 
and it's not even as it the even the diary got long after a while the movie doesn't so thank you for saying that that means a lot thank you David. well good seeing you and uh, congratulations and i i sat down and watched this in one day i gotta say because i do i had read the diaries when i was a kid so i was very interested and then as i got into it um it wasn't what i expected i gotta say but it was something else that was uh unexpected and, and i that was the delight about it for me you know it took me further than i expected to go which is a rarity these days so thank you for the film <laughs> thank you well and, and and you knew andy you saw him so that means a lot i don't know if i knew him intimately but i, I he right. was certainly like he was part of that world i only wish that i had spent more time chasing basquiat but <laughs> it was um but yeah he was like it was part he was part of the scene in a way that was very kind of like familiar and easy after a while kind of like fran lebowitz now <laughs> when you see her at dinner it's like okay fran's there <laughs> she's everywhere in new york so uh andy was that but as i say always leaving fran's sitting down for dinner andy's leaving dinner anyway That's um to describe him yeah a pleasure to see you and congratulations. And I'm looking forward to whatever's next. Thank you, David. Absolutely. Great to see you too. I hope we see each other in person at some point. I, I will look forward to that now that as COVID subsides slowly into the, the, the distance, hopefully. Anyway, take good care. Okay. Be well and uh, good luck. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.